say a word about, about the Psalms that we've been reading. I think often in the Christian tradition, the Psalms kind of get lost. It's this big section in the middle of our book. If we open our Bible to the middle of them, odds are you might land on one of the 150 Psalms. But sometimes it, we don't read them nearly as often. Maybe we spend more time reading them at weddings or funerals than we do at our own regular Christian walk. But the, our Jewish brothers and sisters, especially at the time of Jesus and even currently today, these were their prayers. They had many, many, many of them memorized. In fact, even in the life of Jesus, I believe two out of the last seven things we hear our Savior utter before his death, two of, out of those seven are from the Psalms. So it's, it's a very important practice, and, and we learn in our faith that the disciples ask Jesus, when we don't know what to say, when we don't know what to pray, what do we pray? And we pray that prayer already. But the cool thing is, is we don't have just that one. We've got 150 more found in the Psalms. They're old songs, and we and the Jewish people use them as prayers. And so what I want to do during this time where we normally do our scripture reading time, you should have gotten one of these in your bulletin when you came in. And so what I want to do is instead of just having a reading and a listening, I would like to use this time as a time of prayer. And so I'm going to read it aloud, and you can either follow along silently, or you can, if you'd like to, read it aloud with me. But instead of approaching it as just something we're reading, let's approach it with a posture of prayer. So if you have that, I'd love for you to join me. It begins with, have mercy on me. And again, I'll say it, and if you want to join, feel free. Have mercy on me, God. Have mercy on me, because I have taken refuge in you. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings until destruction passes by. I call out to God most high, to God who comes through for me. He sends orders from heaven and saves me, rebukes the one who tramples me. God sends his loyal love and faithfulness. My life is in the middle of a pack of lions. I lie down among those who devour humans. Their teeth are spears and arrows. Their tongues are sharpened swords. Exalt yourself, God, higher than the heaven. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. Will you pray with me? Good and gracious God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on me, O oh God, that I might preach your word in the way that you call me to. May the meditations of my heart and words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. May I share your good news, God. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll repeat after me, have mercy on me. How many times have you said that to God? I mean, that's in the psalm, right? And I can imagine how many times God has heard that phrase, have mercy on me. You know, wars and battles, unfortunately, have been a part of the story of humanity from the beginning of time, haven't they? People and kingdoms seem to argue over lines in the sand, over what is mine and what is yours, right, wrong, my way, your way. Conflict happens. And Methodists have always advocated for peace. We have always been a part of that, but we too seem to war over all kinds of territory, don't we, Methodists? 
You know, if you think about today's struggle of sexuality, and if you think of that as the first time that we have ever been in a struggle or a quarrel, then you're sadly mistaken. Did you know that in 1986, there was a big brouhaha over the hymnal? Over the hymnal. Like Marvin said, Pastor Marvin once said a few months ago, if Methodists don't have something to quarrel over, they will make a quarrel. Right, Marvin? Well, the hymnal committee for the 1989 hymnal had decided to omit a favorite hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. Now, they did this because they were advocates for peace, and they thought, well, we're, we're singing Onward Christian Soldiers, and yet we're advocates for peace, and so these two things do not match, so we're just going to take that hymn out of the hymnal. Methodists had a strong reaction, to say the least, um, to the point that it made national news, CBS, ABC, and NBC News. And so the committee had to rethink their decision. A lot of phone calls and letters went in, and they decided that it was necessary to keep this beautiful hymn in the hymnal. The hymnal states what we know, something to be true, that war happens, and in every war, there are Christians who find themselves in a battle. Amen? The hymn is in the hymnal on 585, if you want to read through the beautiful words. Onward, Christian soldiers. I think of the soldiers who um, were a part of this congregation. Those who have served our country in so many ways. I can remember Bob Apple telling me a story. Now, how many of you remember Bob Apple? He was in that great generation. He was a saint of Salem and he fought in World War II. And he told me the day of how the feelings he had on the day that he went into battle in Anzio. He told me how scared he was. Now, if you knew Bob, he was raised in the love of Christ, grew up here at Salem in faith, and he carried that strong faith into a war he did not really want to be in. And he said that he read the words of Psalm 91 over and over again before they arrived at the launch point that day. And he held to the promises of God's protection. And he believed in them. Now, I looked up this hymn in what would have been the translation probably during uh, the time of Salem, the, the old RSV. And so here are the beautiful words to this psalm. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. 
Now he held on to these words as he headed into battle. A German mortar did land near him, and a piece of that mortar went straight through his jaw. The x-rays showed that just a few millimeters this way or that way would have been fatal for Bob. He came home from the war. But he held on to his faith through the entire experience and told of that faith long after the war was over. Now, this psalm that I just read you, Psalm 91, is said to be written by Anonymous. We don't know if King David wrote this particular psalm, but it sounds like him. It sounds like something that he would write. And as Pastor Tim said last week, David was a lot of things. He was a little shepherd boy that became the next anointed king of Israel. He was a shepherd, a warrior, a king, and a poet. Most of the Psalms, or I should say a lot of the Psalms in our book of Psalms, are written by King David. He was messed up, though. That's why we titled it the way we did. He was messed up. He was a messed up person, just like we all are, who was attempting to live a faithful life. Now, anyone here live between the tension of who you are and who you want to be? Am I alone? <laughs> there is a definite tension, isn't there? And King David lived in this tension as well, and he showed us so many times how to do that well, which we're going to hear about today. And then he showed us the not-so-good moments in his faith walk, and we'll hear about those next week. But he lived in this messed up life just like the rest of us do. And the people of Israel, they, they went through this journey. Now, the Old Testament tells us of the journey. After Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites made a covenant with God and came into the promised land. The people were known as God's chosen people, and they were to be faithful to God in his commands, and they were, they were to live in this covenant with God. You are my God, and we are his people. That kind of covenant. And um, before the book of Samuel, we have this book of Judges. And this book tells the story of how God's people failed at this over and over and over again. In fact, the book of Judges says this was a good judge. This was a bad judge, an evil judge. And so we have this, that the people failed in all of this big time. They just over and over again failed at what God was calling them to do. And so the book of Samuel provides the answer to what was needed. They were in need of wise and faithful leaders. And so we have this book of Samuel that tells the story of three main characters. The prophet Samuel, which the book is written after. King Saul and King David. Did you know that it was all one book at one time? Our modern book has it split apart because the scroll was too long. But 
we have 1 Samuel and we have 2 Samuel. It's all the same story. It's about Samuel, the prophet, King Saul, who was the first king, and then eventually King David. And all of these transitioned Israel from a group of tribes ruled by the judges to a unified kingdom that eventually is ruled by King David. Now, Pastor Tim told a little bit of the story last week of how King David was selected as the next king. And if you read um, previously in the story, you hear about King Saul. And King Saul had been anointed king of Israel. And as my grandma would say, he'd become a little too big for his britches. He was full of himself. King started out, he, Saul started out with great potential, and he had some deep character flaws, though. He was dishonest. You don't want your king to be dishonest, do you? He lacked integrity, and he had become prideful and arrogant. Saul was incapable of acknowledging any of his own mistakes, in fact, he goes so far as to blatantly disobey God. Prophet Samuel had warned the people of Israel about this. He'd said, you need a king that is a humble leader, a king that was faithful to God. Or the same thing is going to happen all over again that happened to you before. Everything's going to go to ruin. And so this is where David comes in. I liked how Pastor Tim described David as the runt of the litter because that's what he was. He was the eighth son, not even counted among the sons, the littlest in the group. He wasn't expected to be much. So they gave him the dirtiest, the stinkiest job, the job for the little brother, shepherding the sheep. But shepherding the sheep was an important job as well. And makes it kind of sound like it was a weak job. You didn't need to be strong or anything like that. And the scriptures tell us that David fought a bear. He fought a lion. You see, all of this shepherding the sheep job prepared him for what God was about to do. Have you ever been in those seasons of your life? What I call the season of preparation you know something is in the future, you just don't know what, but you look back when you're in it, you can look back and you can see that God had been preparing you, preparing your heart and your soul and your faith for such a time as this, as Esther says in the book of Esther. And David was being prepared. David was exactly who God was looking for a shepherd, a servant, someone who had a humble heart, someone with the kind of faith who would enter a battle against a giant with just a slingshot and a few stones. That kind of faith. You know, the battle of David and Goliath really is the turning point for David. We no longer see him as the little shepherd boy, and then now all of a sudden we see him as the warrior. I think it's probably the, the story that we remember most from our childhood if you grew up in Sunday school with the flannel board, the big giant on the flannel board and the little David and the little stones, right? You remember the story. 
But we think of David as brave and fearless at this point. But he probably went into that battle with that giant a little like Bob Apple did the day he went into Anzio. Praying and dependent upon the promises of God, leaning into his faith. And by the grace of God, David did win the war that day. Now, I say it that way because that was the tradition. If one opponent fought another opponent um, in lieu of all of the men in battle, then that war was won. And so by the grace of God, David did succeed that day. But faith carried him through the battle. And as you can imagine, David becomes the hero, right? He, it, you can hear all the women talking. Oh, did you hear? That little shepherd boy, he, he fought that big giant, and he took him with just that slingshot and those few stones, and he's cute on top of that, you know? And he becomes the hero, the rock star, and from that point on, Saul and David's story becomes really messed up. Really messed up. A new giant enters David's battles. And that is the giant of Saul's pride and his jealousy. You see, David, the warrior, is not a one-hit wonder. No, he, he's joined the army of Israel and he is winning battles left and right and the people are singing and they are dancing even. We don't know how the tune went, but the words went like this. Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. <laughs> Can you imagine Saul the first time he heard them sing that song and saw them dance down the street? Yeah. David becomes beloved. You know that's what his name means? Beloved. David means beloved. I can imagine his mother named him, right? He's the last of the sons. Here's my little beloved. Everyone loves David. It's like that sitcom, Everyone Loves Raymond, only everyone loves David. Even Saul's family. Saul's son, the next one who would become king, joins over with David and becomes his best friend. Jonathan and David had a relationship of being best friends and support each other through difficult times, even when Saul was raging. He sided with David. McCall. King Saul's daughter becomes David's wife. Everyone loved. David was beloved by all of Saul's family and all of the people of Israel. And this is good, there's good reason for this. Do you know why he was beloved? In the tension of who he was and who he wanted to be, he was in the good spot. Now we all have how we're put together, right? how we're wired, and we can live within the good parts of ourselves, and we can live in the not-so-good parts of ourselves. And this is the part in which he was living 
within this, himself, the part of God. God's spirit within him. Even in this newfound fame, David stays grounded and rooted in his faith. He remembers where he came from. Do you remember where you came from? Sometimes it's pretty humbling where we come from and we look back and, and we think, how did I get here from there? And God's hand is over all of it. David stays grounded in this, and he, he has this humble heart that leads him. And maybe that's why he's known as a man after God's own heart. He turns down the big rewards. He loves the haters. He reaches out to the rejected. We can clearly see his character. He is a humble servant. Humble servanthood ruled David's heart, and jealousy ruled Saul's. Jealousy is a powerful uh, force of evil, isn't it? It can cut down the empowering work of God that is right before us, just like that. And jealousy is going to happen because it's a part of our fallen world. It's a part of our human condition. Jealousy is going to happen. So we have to ask ourselves, what will we do when the jealousy demons comes knocking at our door? How are we going to prepare for that? Preparation is half the battle, isn't it? God had been preparing David in all of the instances of being the shepherd boy and, and fighting against the forces of the wildlife that was around trying to get the, the sheep. He'd been preparing him all of this time to lead with a humble heart. His brothers, I'm sure, had put him in his place many times, right? And so preparation is half the battle. And if you name the sin that is before you, you have a better chance of beating it. And so fighting sin means that we expect it at the door. And then tackle it when it tries to come through the door, right? Then we become the warrior. We hold a different kind of weapon, though. As those who follow Christ, we hold a different kind of weapon than the world holds. We hold a weapon of grace, of mercy. And David shows us how to pick up this weapon of grace. He's living into the good parts of himself in this part of his story, and, and Saul is not. Saul is living in his jealousy and his hatred even for David. Saul goes so far as to try to kill David himself multiple times. And in each time, David shows mercy. In fact, in this last time, he, he, he flees the kingdom. And he ends up in a cave with his men in Engedi. Now, our trip to Israel that Pastor Sean and I went to recently, you get to drive by what tradition says is the cave where David held up with his men. And this is an area where it is complete desert all around. There's nothing to offer. And so he's hiding away in this cave from Saul. And the psalm that we read this morning together in our entry into the sermon was Psalm 57, correct? 57. And this is 
David's words as he's in this cave, as he's praying and lamenting and pouring his soul out to God, have mercy on me, God. And God does hear his prayer. And he said, let's see how much mercy you will show. The story is found in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. And we're going to see that Saul enters the cave alone. He's, I'm going to be, try to be nice about it. He's using it as a porta potty okay? He's going in to relieve himself. So he thinks he's alone. But the men and David are at the back of the cave, and they try to put God's words into David's ear. Only they weren't God's words. They were the men's words. The Lord has brought him to you, David. The Lord's brought him right here. Take him out. No more worries. We've been homeless. We are tired. We're living in a cave in the desert. Get him. Let's go home. Right? And David doesn't. He does show mercy. He does not take Saul's life. Because David knew that if he took Saul's life at that point, that his running would just change. Instead of running from Saul, he would be running for the, from the next person who wanted to take the crown. Right? One action here causes another action there. Consequences. And David trusted God to write a better story. He makes a different choice than what his men are encouraging him to do. He just takes the end of his robe. He sneaks up behind Saul and he cuts off the end of his robe. And he even felt bad about that. What have I done? This is the Lord's anointed. I shouldn't have even touched him. We can find the story. I'm going to read you just a little bit of the story from the message translation. It's everyday language. Then David stood at the mouth of the cave. Now, this is after Saul has left the cave and headed on his way. And called to Saul, my master, my king. Saul looked back. David fell to his knees and bowed in reverence. He called out, why do you listen to those who say David is out to get you? This very day with your very own eyes you have seen that just now in the cave God put you in my hands. My men wanted me to kill you, but I wouldn't do it. I told them that I won't lift a finger against my master. He's God's anointed. Oh, my father, look at this. Look at this piece that I cut from your robe. I could have cut you, killed you, but I didn't. Look at the evidence. I'm not against you. I'm no rebel. I haven't sinned against you, and yet you're hunting me down to kill me. Let's decide which of us is in the right. God may avenge me, but it's, it, it is in his hands, not mine. An old proverb says, evil deeds come from evil people, so be assured that my hand won't touch you. So Saul responds, can this be the voice of my son David? 
Remember, this David is his son-in-law. This is family here. Can this be the voice of my son, David? And he wept in loud sobs. You're the one in the right, not me, he continued. You've heaped good on me. I've dumped evil on you. And now you've done it again, treated me generously. God put me in your hands and you didn't kill me. Why? When a man meets his enemy, does he send him down the road with a blessing? May God give you a bonus of blessings for what you've done for me today. David trusted God for the better story. He did this by doing what was right in the eyes of God. You see, David's utmost identity and heart was shaped by God's identity, God's goodness, and God's heart. His strength came from God's strength. And his worth came from God, not a world or a kingdom or a crown. David remembered his identity by remembering who God was. And David was setting a stage. Setting a stage for an upside-down kingdom and a different kind of king. A king that would come as a babe born in a cave by an unwed mother, a king that would touch the untouchable and reach out to the marginalized, a king that would wash the feet of others and show what it means to serve, a king that would say, the last will be first and the first will be last. You see the upside down kingdom? And David's life told a story his decisions told a story. His identity told a story. It, sto it told a story of God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. And our life tells a story too, church. As those who follow Christ, our life tells a story of a Savior who loved us so much that he cleared the past and the future. We're both saved from and made for something. Our story is our identity. And when we remember Christ, we remember who we are. What story is your life telling, church? What story are you telling? The world needs to see and experience the love of Christ, amen? Our world may be different than King David's, but there's still a lot of conflict happening. Amen? Can people see Christ in you? Can people see you pick up a different kind of weapon than the retaliation weapon? Than the ugly words weapon? Than the jealousy weapon? Can people see you pick up a, war a weapon of grace? A weapon of mercy, a weapon of love. You know, we live in that tension, don't we? The tension of who we are and who we want to be. And when things get sticky, we have to dig down deep 
and remember where our identity comes from. What citizen and what kingdom we belong to. And when we have clarity of who Christ is and how he changed our life, the more we will live into that change. Onward Christian Soldiers, the hymn. It tells us that there will be Christians who will march into battle and that they will hold the cross in front of them to guide them. We're all going to encounter battles, aren't we, church? Battles come every day. And so we have to remember who we are and carry our cross forward so that the world can see who Christ is. Onward, Christian soldiers. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, thank you. Thank you for the stories of old and the stories of today. Help us to be your story. To show your love in the world around us, to offer grace and mercy. Help us to remember that we are yours, marked as disciples to follow you and bring others to you. In Jesus' name, amen.